in there? Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Slate Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about those things fun and frivolous and frightening. For most of us, it's summertime, the kids are off school, and they're looking for things to do. Have you considered introducing them to the wonderful world of podcasts? Now, I realize that our stories aren't exactly kiddie-friendly, So may I suggest a great new show which can introduce your little ones to the creepy world around us? Friend of the show, Sean Yates, and his young son, Elias, have created a podcast called Kid Cryptid, where they discuss all the creepy creatures which just might be real. They're already 12 episodes in, and you and your little ones can learn all about creatures like Bigfoot, Leprechauns, and the Loch Ness Monster. It's a fun, family-friendly show. A great way to pass those long summer days. Check the show notes for a link to the Kid Cryptid Podcast. And friend of the show, Marcus Demanda, has recently released a new collection of stories in a book titled Impressions of Death. The book is a collection of 15 stories, 12 of which we've produced here at the No Sleep Podcast, and three that will be new to everyone. The last story is called No Sleep Live and the Ghost of Cypress Street. It's a creepy tale based on actual events from the No Sleep Podcast live tour, including notes from the tour team themselves. So check the show notes for where you can get your own copy of Impressions of Death and learn what really goes on when the No Sleep Podcast hits the road. And so you now have some summer listening and reading to enjoy. Let's give you something to put a chill down your spine as we start the show. So turn down the lights and grab the remote, because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we meet a father on a trip down memory lane. In a quiet suburb filled with the sound of chirping birds, Author Luke Condor introduces us to an evil hidden in plain sight. Everything looks normal, but memories swirl of a terrible event from the past, horrific and unexplained. Performing this tale are David Alt, Erica Sanderson, and James Cleveland. So be careful when you follow someone into the unknown, because even the most innocuous of places can hide awful secrets especially when you head into Blackberry Gap.
I stand at the gap's exit, the point at which Downside Drive meets the back of the garages of the fire service building. There sits a single bush, the roots jutting out from the concrete. Broken glass crunches under my feet as I walk to it, crouch down. Lifting the branches, I see how solidly the walls meet, pressed so tight you might think they came out of a mould that way, forever fixed. There used to be a gap here. I say this to my son, who's behind me kicking his football against the curb, bouncing it back to himself. He doesn't reply, just keeps on kicking. And blackberries. Some blackberries too. No answer, but that's okay. He wouldn't understand. This was the manor estates, the place where I grew up. My son couldn't give two shits about it, and quite rightly so. But he's a good kid. He's letting me bathe in my nostalgia, wondering how this place could be so small. Have I grown, or have these estates shrunk? Both seem plausible. I think back to my friend, what's his face? Joe, Jerry, James, something with a J at the front. I wonder how I'd not thought of him until now. It was him who told me about the gap, said he'd passed through it many times, that it was like going through another world. I hadn't thought about it for a long time, but now, walking around past the park where we used to play hide-and-seek, the old archer's house with the crooked tree out front, the same Staniland household at the end, I'm having all sorts of memories wash over me. I remember that I used to be terrified of the Stanny brothers, but now they seem so small to me. So silly. I even consider going and knocking on the door, asking if they still live here, but I don't, because I'm pretty sure that they don't. We've all moved on now. Except for my friend, Jason. That's not his name, it's getting closer though. He doesn't live anywhere anymore. But it's this gap that has me scared. Not shitting myself scared, but that creeping sort of scared that has you rationalizing things, reminding yourself how it's all okay, because the gap isn't there anymore. I must have made it up. Yeah, I must have. Because here is where the exit should be. This is where we came out. And now there is nothing. So where did we go in? I picture the entrance. It was right around the other side of Downside Drive, up onto Tudor Close, to where the garages circle around the gravel road that leads towards town. The place where I fell off my skateboard, gouged out a nugget of flesh from my kneecap. <laughs> I still have the scar. The gap itself was a weird little oversight of planning construction. It happens. Sometimes the meters don't quite add up. You find an extra inch here and there, and soon enough you end up with an oddity, a gap, about a thousand meters or so in length, less than a meter wide. The walls on either side were two stories high, skyscrapers to a child's eye. The entrance was hidden. God knows how my friend found it. He took me there once, led me down behind the garages, past the dried red paint on the floor, some empty beer bottles, and uh, pointed to it. Greenery spilled out from its side, and I saw blackberries growing there. 
I picked one, went to eat it before I saw a green fly flapping its wings on its surface, burrowing down into the nook between segments. Suddenly ready to gag, I threw the berry against the floor where it splattered ruby-red juice on the concrete. There was some on my hand, too. A couple of small black seeds stuck to my fingertips. So, the gap. I remember now. It wasn't wide, arm's length at most. One quick peek and you'd be right to turn away. It was a dark and dank and soggy little tunnel. All cobwebs and shrubs and lost things. Balls, frisbees, a dog collar. Some way further up, there were scattered old newspapers, sodden and stuck to the ground like carpet. It was dark, too, mostly. The creeper vines and brush acted as a ceiling. Sunlight found its way in, but there wasn't much of it. It pierced through in places, like fingers of fading lights guiding you on. You've been all the way through. My friend nodded, told me where it came out, the exit, said it wasn't too dangerous. Hmm, creepy as fuck, though. I nodded, confirmed that it certainly was. Fancy it? He placed a blackberry in his mouth, squinting at its tartness. And it's safe. <clears throat> safe enough. Dad? I don't turn around. I can't now. I'm lost in memory thinking about how people say there are two worlds. The adult one and the kids one. They coexist, these worlds, but where adults see hills, children see mountains. Where adults see a makeshift den in the woods, children see a beatific wonder. And where adults see roads and garages and concrete, children see gaps. And sometimes, sometimes they go into them. It seemed safe enough, sure, but it stunk something rotten like old, dead fruit and lost, leathering animals. It very quickly became claustrophobic. We could stand for the first hundred meters or so before the ceiling of vines and shrubs dropped too low and we had to crawl, keeping our hands pressed to the walls as we went, but occasionally having to brush branches and cobwebs out of our faces. The trail of dropped newspapers led to a thick stack, so old and so sodden that they looked like one solid block, all separation lost. The topmost paper mostly faded, but for the headlines. I saw the date, and it was old. Ancient history to my young mind. We continued on, me leading the way, my friends just behind, feeling the backs of the concrete garages with our hands, covering them in dust and dirt. Innocent snails popped underfoot as more webs caught in our hair, noses, eyes. Then it got tighter. The green ceiling became lower and thicker. Those fingers of sunlight now all but gone. We were passing the halfway point when we heard the noise and felt the earth shake. A deep vibration that we felt through the soles of our trainers, through the concrete on the walls, as if some subterranean animal was well beneath us, deep in the earth, growling. Chalky dust spilled from above us and we both coughed on it. I suggested we go back. No point now. We better just go on through. He nodded past me, and I saw the small pocket of daylight, smaller than the size of my hand, at the very end. 
At the time, I meant to ask if it was like this the last time he came through, but all conversation had left me, taken over by the feral need to survive. I figured questions could wait until we were out the other side. I figured wrong. We crawled on, snagging clothes and hair on the thorny branches and cloying sticks, the nature itself seeming to be catching us, slowing us down on purpose. I cut my hand on more of the broken glass down there. It bled, mixed with the chalky concrete dust. I would have cursed at such a wound any other day, but I was too focused in that moment. The wall shook again. Icy fingers seemed to stroke the lower of my back. I looked to my friend, saw a speck of blackberry juice on his lip. He looked back at me with the same wide eyes. We both felt it. We didn't need to say anything. We'd both felt the walls move. On our right side, the wall of pebble-dashed concrete had shifted. Looking down, we could see it. What would now be the backs of the houses on Tudor Close had moved, maybe less than an inch. Bracken and greenery had bunched up, like the carpet of the gap was being rolled up, squashed shut. The understanding between us was instinctual, maybe even spiritual. All logic flew out of the window, and what we were left with was a simple fact that the gap was closing. The fucking gap was closing. We pushed ourselves through as fast as we could. The overgrowth grew thicker, angrier, gripping at our hands, our knees, our ankles. I screamed as the wall moved another inch. It was obvious then, blatant. The gap intended to close all the way, like back teeth clamping shut. Two hands pressing together, crushing whatever blackberries happened to be caught between. The scramble that followed almost feels like a fever dream to me now. The earth around us continuing to growl that angry whale song as the gap tightened. The pocket of light at the exit grew wider like an eye of sunlight opening. I scraped my way through, digging my fingers along the concrete walls, losing a fingernail as I went. My friend Jonas, was it Jonas? Pushed at my back too, screaming such a piercing wail that I almost felt it biting at my subconscious, could feel it turning me several shades whiter. In the end, as I saw through the exit, saw the feet of people walking by not paying attention or not hearing this chaos, I screamed for help as the wall now pressed up against my chest, squeezed the air out of me. The wall moved some more, seemed to speak to us, seemed to laugh the way snow does when it avalanches, the way mountains do when they shift and make faults, the way volcanoes do as they pop. The gap closed its mouth. I made it through, tumbled to the floor and cried, clutched my bleeding wrist and broken ankle. Only now did the adults, a man and a woman walking their dog along Downside Drive, see me, hear me. I think maybe it was the Stanilin parents. To be honest, I can't remember. They came over, asked what was wrong, but all I could do was scream and cry and shout for my friend Jonah. Poor Jonah. Yes. Jonah. That was it. He's in the gap! I pointed to the exit. That's when the dog, a little Staffordshire Bull Terrier, bumbled over, picked something up, began to shake it around between his teeth. I didn't need to see what the dog had in its mouth to know it was a little piece of Jonah, squished forward like a blackberry seed. Some of that blackberry juice lay on the concrete, where the backs of the houses met downside drive. 
There wasn't even a millimeter gap anymore. No planning errors, only a little of the vine and overgrowth pouring out from its end. The woman screamed then at what her little Bruno had in his mouth. I go to yell Jonah's name, but my son's ball comes over to me, bounces against my foot. I turn to him and he's staring at me, head tilted to the side. You okay, Dad? I wipe away the tear that I didn't know was there. I clear my throat, feel at the rough skin of mashed up fingertips on my right hand. <coughs> yeah, I, I'm okay, just weird. There used to be a gap here. I glance once more at the exit that was no longer there, wonder what other little worlds I lost along the way, jettisoned as I hurtled through to adulthood, losing friends and memories along the way. My son smiles and I kick the ball back to him a little too hard. It bounces on and rolls further down the road. I'll get it. I jog to catch up with it, taking all the while telling him how he'll understand a little more when he's older, how he should make the most of his time as a kid, make sure to stay in touch with his friends and that. I don't reach the ball, though. I'm stopped as I hear that same low rumble deep in the ground, the same mountainous chuckles. I turn, fall to my knees, scream as I catch sight of the back of my son's shoes disappearing into the gap. Pranks can be fun. It's entertaining to play tricks on people who will take them well. But sometimes a prankster's grinning face can be hiding a deep, dark sadness. Such is the case in this tale, shared with us by author Carson Ray. When a young man's father suffers a tragic accident, his previous jovial prank begins to take on a darker significance. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Nicole Doolin, and Jesse Cornett. So pay attention to your loved ones, even if they're laughing on the outside, because sometimes it's just a mask. And pay special attention if they're spending all their time with Calvin. I remember the first time I ever saw Calvin. It was late and well after dark. Like clockwork, I left my job at the local grocery store just after 11 and drove the two or three miles to my home. Because I still lived with my parents and sisters, I never got the luxury of having a garage in which to park my truck due to the simple fact that each of us had a vehicle. So also like clockwork, I parked down just outside the basement door right at 11.10 p.m. I 
I remember slamming my truck door just a tad too loud, making me wince there in the moonlit dark. If I recall correctly, I think I might have even paused a moment outside and took in the full moon, which lit up the forests surrounding my house, casting skeletal shadows across the uncut grass down below the driveway. I was always a fan of werewolves growing up, you see, so a full moon still brought out some excitement deep down in my chest. Living in a house in the woods, a few miles outside of the artificial lighting of town, really gave the moon room to breathe and glow, as it always should be allowed to do. I probably stood for a few minutes there on that summer's night, contemplating the full moon, werewolves, and the beasts within us all. After dispelling my nocturnal reflections, I walked up to the basement door, opened it, and stepped inside. And there was Calvin. He was a prank, nothing more, a scarecrow puppet placed inside the basement by my father, who always had a mischievous streak for as long as I could remember. Propped up by a hand truck and several 18-inch bungee cords, Calvin wore tan Carhartt overalls, a camouflaged jacket, thick rubber boots, and, curiously, a welder's mask. Seeing him there, lit by the stairwell behind him, was more than a little bit startling. I'm honestly not sure how I managed not to shout or even scream, coming home at night and seeing a tall, shadowy figure in a welder's mask in the darkness of the basement was certainly not part of my routine, you see. I'm proud to say I composed myself rather quickly. Calvin, of course, did not move the slightest bit, and after several seconds I could see the hand truck he'd been propped against. Immediately I knew my father was behind yet another prank, so I was able to relax just moments after shutting the basement door. Nevertheless, I still cautiously approached the steps up into the house proper due to the possibility of my father jumping out of the darkness somewhere the light couldn't touch. While it would have been a perfect opportunity for a scare, my father never materialized. I paused a moment on my way past this ominous figure to observe what was beneath the eye slit of his mask. All I could see was a pair of wide, terrified eyes leaking bloody tears. Eyes I recognized with a shudder. I knew the rest of the hidden mask featured a gruesome jaw ripped and torn cartoonishly moments before the bone was severed completely. I remembered the first time I saw the mask. It was years and years ago when my father wore it as he crawled on his hands and knees, effectively providing all of his children with nightmares for weeks. Here it was again after a long absence. Though the casual observer with no knowledge of my father's past affection for the mask would just assume the scarecrow was scared of something, they'd have to remove his welding mask to reveal the reason for those agonized eyes. 
I stood there for a moment, shaking my head at my father's latest prank, which was easily his best in years. After the initial shock wore off, I found myself admiring my father's youthfulness and hoped I would be as devious when I was in my sixties. I climbed the stairs, turned off the light, and shut the door on the thing I would soon learn was to be called Calvin. The next day, I confronted my mother about the thing in the basement, as I wanted to know whether or not my father had managed to startle her with it as well. Apparently, this had not been the case. No, he actually ran upstairs and told me to come see it. He was so proud. Its name is Calvin. Calvin? <laughs> yes. Well, why did he make Calvin? I think because he was bored. You know how he gets sometimes on his off days. I did know this, so I just accepted her answer and went about my day. My father had been at work. He had been employed at Chart in Ballground as a welder for over twenty years, and while he seemed to enjoy his job, I always got the distinct impression that he carried some mysterious weight that was born out of his profession. Days went by. Every day I left to go to work, I regarded Calvin out of the corner of my eye. I was forced to look at him dead on whenever I returned. I strongly suspected that Calvin was merely part of some longer con to frighten me. All my father would have to do would be to let Calvin stand there for a week or two, steadily lulling me into a sense of familiarity. Then, one night when he knew I would be returning from work at 11.10, as usual, he could actually dress up as Calvin and stand there. When I at last walked through the basement and towards the stairs, Calvin could come to life, yelling and flailing and doing God knows what to send me screaming off into the distant woods. But that never happened. Instead, my father added little details to Calvin and brought in new acquisitions he had purchased from a local pawn shop on his days off. One day, I opened the upstairs door to the basement and could only shake my head in disbelief at what was standing at the foot of the stairs. According to my mother, once my father saw something he wanted, the more foolish the better, he could not rest until he had it for himself. Calvin, who stood a few feet off to the side in front of the stairwell, had been joined by a wooden sea captain which stood almost five feet high. Clearly carved and painted by hand, the captain wore the most generic clothing you could imagine for his profession. White captain's hat, blue coat, and white pants. Interestingly, like his roommate Calvin, the captain had wide, lidless eyes that seemed to stare up into the house proper. I rather enjoyed the sea captain's statue, more so than Calvin, and I would often pat his shoulder on my way down to my truck outside. As for Calvin, he always seemed to keep busy, albeit in slight ways. For example, one day I'd come home and my father would have turned the hand trucks slightly, giving Calvin a different silhouette against the stairwell light than I was used to. Much more noticeably, one day I returned to find Calvin holding a meat cleaver. 
I must say, the initial effect of seeing him standing there in the dark with a weapon was quite effective, but once I moved closer, it was clear that my father had simply taped one of my old plastic Halloween toys to one of Calvin's sleeves since he had no hands or gloves. The sea captain, meanwhile, stood bathed in soft light, alone, as if he was reflecting on whatever Calvin had done or planned to do with that toy cleaver. And so time went on, the end of summer wilting away into fall, and fall dying into winter. The sea captain, who remained unnamed, to the best of my knowledge, began to wear a grotesque plastic skull Halloween mask my father must have bought somewhere. Upon closer inspection, it was obvious that it hadn't originally been made as a mask at all. My father had simply taken one of those flat skeletons you hang up, severed the head from the body, and placed the newly fashioned mask over the sea captain's face. Since the skeleton had its own dark eye sockets, I enjoyed not seeing the captain's wide eyes for a few days, before my father became dissatisfied and cut out the skeleton's sockets. The sea captain must always be able to see and watch over Calvin. <laughs> Some of the changes around that time were not so little or insignificant. On one cold, dreary winter's day, I returned home from visiting a friend just before darkness fell and found my mother, a normally fierce woman with long and curly red hair, running through the house, screaming. She kept carrying on and on about some phone call she'd just received, but her words sounded jumbled together with no coherent pattern. It took me several minutes to calm her down before she could articulate the source of her anguish. Your father got into a fight at work, some disagreement with a co-worker. I don't know. He's in the hospital. As my mother screamed out this information to me and my two younger sisters, the 16-year-old twins, Caitlin and Kim, cowered in their shared bedroom. I still remember their whimpering, squeezing through the walls. I convinced my mother not to force my sisters to accompany us to the hospital until we knew what was really going on. Eventually, she agreed. After telling my sisters to keep an eye on their cells and wait for my call, I drove my mother to the hospital. To say she was still in a frantic state would be putting it most lightly. When we arrived, we met with a few of my father's co-worker friends sitting in the waiting room. Though they were polite and repeatedly stressed that they would help us out in any way they could, I knew it was worse than I feared by the way they constantly avoided eye contact and dodged questions. After a few minutes of interrogation, I gave up and followed my mom to my father's room, the root cause of the argument still eluding me. My father sat propped up in bed, his face wrapped tightly with gauze. His right eye significantly bloodshot and slowly leaking thick tears peeked out from the gauze above a slit for his swollen lips. Seeing my father like that chilled me to the core of my being, which finally opened up a small measure of panic in my chest. 
Though my mother was frantic, I was very grateful that she didn't scream when she saw him there, since his appearance was not unlike the mummy in those old Universal Studios monster films. She reached across the bed and hugged my father's chest. His only eye stared across the room into a muted wall and a television that had never been turned on. He said next to nothing that entire first day. Steadily, we pieced together what had happened. My father and the man he worked in close quarters with suddenly broke into a heated argument startling everyone else nearby. Everyone I spoke to said that there was no build-up. They simply began to yell at each other. Though there was an initial burst of thrown punches, things spiraled out of control within seconds. The fight got so out of hand that the co-worker took a welding torch to my father's face, more or less melting his left eye and a good portion of his nose. Not only that, the assaulter battered my father repeatedly in the face with gloved fists once he was down. I can still recall the anger and fear that surged through me. What had my father said that warranted having half of his face melted off? Had he done something, or had he caught the other man doing something? Though the nature of my father's injuries became clearer to us, answers regarding the argument itself were not forthcoming. It would nag at me at all hours of the day, and only rest whenever I was asleep, sometimes not even then. Some time passed. I can't say I remember how long. If you have ever been stricken by tragedy, especially the sort born out of violence, you know how it slides a hot knife into your routine and changes everything. My days became a revolving door of nurses, doctors, family, and friends walking in and out of my father's little room. My father steadily began to respond more often, though the fact that his usually cheerful voice was hollow and devoid of emotion unsettled me to no end. In fact, it was hard to tell that the quiet man in the gauze was my father at all. Though the cause of the argument that would end up destroying his life continued to elude me, I learned that the man who disfigured my father's face had been promptly fired and arrested. It occurred to me then that perhaps my father's co-workers didn't even know themselves what had been said between the two men. Perhaps only my father and his attacker knew the true reason behind their disagreement. Regardless, the attack was so sudden that my father had been unable to defend himself before the flame kissed his face. To her credit, my mother managed to hold it together longer than I thought she would especially considering the severity of her initial meltdown when I found her screaming at the house. She was no doubt more than a little shaky sitting there beside my bandaged and near-silent father in his hospital bed, but those long days revealed her to be the fierce woman she was. She didn't even scream when they removed my father's bandages. Looking back on it now, I think my father desperately wanted her to scream and run out of the room. Maybe he just wanted her to drop what he saw as an act and recoil before him, driving home the horror that had been done to his countenance. 
I could tell that my father didn't feel human at all anymore, so why should he still be treated like one? Had my mother screamed and abandoned him, maybe he could have crawled away somewhere and mourned alone in the dark. Whatever was going on in my father's head, I could see in his remaining eye the heartbreaking truth. He wanted my mother to leave him, leave him and be free of him. He did not want her chained to a monster. But that did not happen. My mother didn't so much as flinch when the nurse removed the bandages. She didn't cry out. She only stood there, and when my father was fully exposed, sat beside him and hugged his heaving chest as ragged sobs sounded throughout the cold room. As we already knew, my father's left eye was entirely gone. In its place remained a tangled mass of shiny tissue so bright in the light it appeared to have been made out of an entirely different substance than skin. More than half of his nose was buried beneath that terrible clump of melted skin, the right nostril the only discernible similarity from weeks before. Though a good portion of his left cheek was burned as well, the damage was nowhere near as severe. Seeing my father displayed in such a way truly drove home the fact that his attacker had not only gone straight for the face, but straight for the eye itself. While the average bystander would probably believe I should have been livid, and make no mistake, I was, when I saw my father's new face for the first time. All I could feel initially was... Well, an overwhelming relief that his attacker had left him one good eye. He didn't talk much in the weeks that followed, even after he returned home. He would just sit in his recliner in the living room for hours and hours, staring at a blank television and mumbling to himself. While my mother was clearly and rightly worried, she seemed able to take comfort in the fact that he was still with us. My father seemed completely unable to see things in that light. He would speak when spoken to, but beyond that he was a silent, brooding presence in the middle of a once lively house. My sisters tried to engage him in conversation when they could, but they might as well have been talking to one of my father's pranks. I can't say I blame my father. Though half of his face looked the same as ever, you, you couldn't really see past the new side. You go through life knowing disfigurement is one of the worst things that can physically happen to a person. But that fact truly doesn't hit home until it happens to you or someone you love. The person changes both physically and mentally. My father changed so much, there were times I thought I could see the change in his heart before I saw the change in his face. It was like that for a time. I began working extra shifts, working as close to overtime as the company would allow. My mother eventually went back to her job at the bank, having strained all the vacation time she'd built up. My sisters resumed their sophomore year of high school, their grades only slipping just a bit and my father sat in his chair in complete silence, not even the overhead fan on to generate some shred of noise. 
Every night, I came home to see Calvin standing in the basement, his plastic cleaver still raised at an awkward angle. Though he was macabre in every sense of the word, after my father's accident, I began to see him as a relic from a much happier time. Each time the thought entered my head, it cut me deeply. The simple thought that my father's youthfulness was no more, being a tough pill to swallow. Then, suddenly, there were signs of life. One night I came home and was almost up the steps before I turned around and noticed that the sea captain was now wearing a wide-brimmed hat. Like Calvin, the sea captain had been untouched for months and seemingly forgotten by everyone else. Here he was wearing a hat my father often wore in the rain. It's strange to say that a hat on a wooden statue could instill me with hope, but that's what happened. Maybe my father could come back from this after all. And for a while it seemed like he was doing just that. It all started with the simple things, a hat placed on a statue, the television switching on, a chuckle at a good joke. He would move around the house a little more, occasionally shuffling into the kitchen or just stretching in the living room. Sometimes he would even make or answer phone calls. Sometimes, during those fragile days of rediscovering who he was, he would find reasons to go downstairs. During that time, I was still working extra hours to help pick up the slack, so I was never home enough to see my father go down to the basement and tinker with his little prank hobbies. I was amazed at how subtle my father could be. Sometimes Calvin and the sea captain would have shifted positions by only a few feet. Sometimes the skull mask would be on the sea captain, sometimes not. For the most part, Calvin was never tinkered with too much, beyond some slight shifting and rearranging. My father was oddly proud of his grotesque creation. So much so that I heard him referring to Calvin as his oldest son when he was on the phone with a co-worker. At first, the comment struck me more than a little odd, but well, this was my father, after all. His eccentricity was endearing, if occasionally misunderstood by people outside his family and close social circle. After a few months, he even went back to work. No doubt he was nervous and self-conscious due to the burns on his face but I was proud by how rarely he showed it during the days leading up to his return. I heard he was warmly received, which didn't surprise me in the slightest. My father, wherever he went through life, has been well-liked by just about everyone. I had never known him to acquire a rogues gallery of enemies until the moment I heard he'd been placed in the hospital by someone he worked with. Him returning to Chart was the last piece of the puzzle. For a time, everything, not counting my father's appearance, of course, went back to normal. Looking back on everything as I'm doing now, I would say the cracks began to show after my mom received a, a strange phone call from Doug Evans, who worked at Chart with my father. I didn't think much of it at the time, but I can't blame myself for that. After the conversation with Doug, my mom sat at the kitchen table with a confused look on her face, which was how I found her as I was getting ready for work. 
I asked her what was wrong, and she told me what Doug had said. For the most part, my dad was the same in the work setting. He was jovial, especially considering the circumstances, and his joking nature seemed to strengthen and become more pronounced by the day. But Doug had noticed something was off about him whenever the two engaged in extended conversation. For example, Doug said that my father would occasionally slip and get the names of his own children wrong. While this was disconcerting, I immediately chalked it up to my father's nerves about returning to work, and to the real world in general. But that wasn't all. Every now and then my father, in the midst of an already established conversation, would suddenly swerve into entirely unrelated topics that made no sense of any kind. When my mother pressed him, Doug couldn't recall most of these topics, though he did remember my father saying something along the lines of, The black goat calls to all of us. Doug repeatedly informed my mother that it was all nonsense and strongly advised her to keep an eye on my father. Should he get worse, Doug recommended a grief counselor that had helped him through the sudden death of his brother. My mother thanked him and hung up the phone, saying nothing for several minutes after. Initially, I wasn't worried. After my mother told me everything Doug had said, I immediately made the argument that my father was still struggling with trauma. How couldn't he be? Half of his face was melted off by an insane co-worker. Trying to assimilate back into the flow of his everyday life before the attack must have been placing some strain on him. I urged my mother to not say anything at first so we could quietly gauge his behavior when he was at home. Since these strange memory lapses and sudden conversational detours were news to us, I felt that there was a chance they were only occurring because of a spike in nervousness in the workplace. <laughs> I was wrong simple as that. It took a few days, but eventually my mother confided in me that my father was saying strange things at the house as well. Due to my work hours, I was almost never home when my father was awake, so it fell to my mother to carry out the brunt of our silent investigation. He seemed jovial enough the few hours I saw him during those days other than the fact that his current level of ease and happiness around the house was a far cry from what it used to be. He was just happier than he was during the first month or so after returning home from the hospital. But yes, eventually he began saying strange things in front of my mother, though to the best of her recollection he never mentioned anything about Doug's black goat, he still hit her with some bizarre statements. Once, during a conversation about an upcoming car insurance payment, my father randomly informed my mother that, and I'm paraphrasing my mother here to the best of my memory, the headlights can't see three feet into the dark outside the door. When my mother asked him to repeat what he had said, my father had no idea what she was talking about. Soon my father's words began taking on an even more sinister edge. Things like, tears fall from the shameless eye, the young babble endlessly in my dreams. Why does God laugh at me whenever it's dark? The beast drags the ship down into the depths. Black flames burn higher and higher. 
Oh, each of these statements are certainly distressing, especially considering that there was no build-up or logical lead-in before my father said them. After he said these things, he would immediately zoom to another topic or back to the ongoing one. Once again, when my mother asked him to repeat himself, my father seemed legitimately dumbfounded. I myself never heard my father say anything so ominous, which I am now more than thankful for. Soon my father's little prank hobbies resumed in earnest. The sea captain was turned at the bottom of the stairs to face anyone, mostly me, who came in through the basement. He purchased an assortment of random objects. An old hair-drying chair from the fifties, a green and black boxing dummy, several glass bottles with little ships inside, and cartoonishly large spectacles. My father claimed he needed these nonsensical items to help further his important work, which I never took seriously as he followed the statement with a conspiratorial wink. For the most part, Calvin remained untouched during this surplus of odd behavior. Those wide, bloody eyes stared back at me in silent terror each and every night I returned home, though by now I had trained myself to never ever look at my father's oldest son in the face. In my mind, Calvin came to represent something I even now can't seem to put into words as clearly as I want to. Calvin was easily my father's most sinister and disturbing creation, but I had to remind myself that he was born before the attack and burning. As my father's unfathomable behavior and strange statements increased in frequency over the next few weeks, a distressing thought steadily began to burrow its way into my mind. What if my father had already been losing his mind before he was attacked? It was a simple thought with endless potency. Had I been mistaking my father's quirks and eccentricities as harmless nonsense when they were, in fact, evidence of a fraying mind? Was it possible that his burning and disfigurement, though temporarily suspending my father's usual moods and actions in a veil of depression, exacerbated a mind already on a downward spiral? My father refused to go see Doug's recommended counselor with my mother, actually getting outright hostile at the suggestion. By the time I heard the yelling from my room at the end of the hall and opened the door, my father had already scaled the steps down into the basement. I comforted my mother, her face swollen through crying and sheer stress, before stealing myself for worse as I too began making the descent into the basement. I wasn't even a third of the way down before I froze in place. I heard my father whispering to Calvin. His words were soft and quiet even in the stillness of the basement, but I could hear the rage and hurt in his voice. He whispered breathlessly into Calvin's non-existent ear. 
as if he expected the grotesque to turn its head and rattle off some sage, endlessly helpful advice. The sound shook me to the core, but I managed to recover quickly and resumed walking down the stairs with thudding footfalls, alerting my father and giving him more than enough time to compose himself. I was surprised to find him visibly shaken. He was clearly embarrassed that he had raised his voice towards my mother. His hands were even trembling. Seeing my poor, disfigured father shaking with shame in a dark basement really took the fire out of me. Any predetermined argument or choice of words I had intended for him withered away in an instant. father was steadily recovering from his ordeal. Had all the signs of his progress, the laughs, the jokes, returning to the workplace, been nothing more than a ruse? Some sort of brave face to replace the one he felt had turned him into a monster. There in the basement, next to a silent Calvin, I listened to my father spill his heart out. It was real. I know that deep in my heart. I won't repeat it here. Those words will stay just between us. Just know that he did not utter one bizarre sentence that derailed the sentiments that came before. He did not cry, but there were more than a few times when I so desperately wished he would. Maybe it would have helped break the terrible tension. Maybe it would have just made things even worse. No son normally likes to see his father cry, no matter how badly the situation calls for it. I, I, I wouldn't have liked it, but I believe, and still believe, that it would have been preferable to the almost robotic state I often found my father in. Everything was alright again for a few days following our heart-to-heart -heart in the basement. The tension in the house was still palpable, as if some explosion could set any and everything ablaze at the slightest drop of a hat or wrong word. My father called out of work, which was no problem at all, as his co-workers and bosses now probably felt that he shouldn't have returned so soon in the first place. For the two days, he just sat in his recliner with his feet kicked up and watched westerns. He was cordial and respectful towards my mother and sisters whenever he was spoken to, but he never seemed to initiate any conversations himself. It was a strange thing seeing him sitting there and watching those movies, which was a regular pastime of his long before the accident. What once brought him joy and comfort now only seemed to underline the normality that he felt had been taken away from him. Soon the strange babbling started up again. 
One day he decided not to turn on the television after I got out of bed, opting instead to sit in his recliner, stare at a black screen, and whisper to himself for hours and hours. Though he would stop immediately and respond to anyone speaking to him, he would resume the whispering seconds after the end of the conversation. Sometimes I would walk into the living room and just stand there and listen to him, trying to pick out what he was saying. He was so quiet that I could pick out only the occasional nonsensical word or phrase. My mother now seemed to have perpetually swollen and pink eyes. I don't know what to do anymore. I feel like I'm lost. Lost in a house I've lived in for almost 30 years. With a man I've known and loved even longer. It's like he's a different person. It'll be okay, Mom. He, he's just... he's still adjusting. Why don't we call Doug and see if he'll come over for a visit? Dad could use a friend. Mom made the call and Doug said he would be free the next day around 7 at night, which I felt was perfect considering I had an earlier shift at work that would allow me to return home around the same time. After the phone call, my mother and I embraced. The sounds of my father's whisperings drifting down the hallway like some broken children's toy that should have been thrown out long ago. Today was the day of Doug's visit. I had left for work around 10 this morning, and I admit I was glad for it. When I left the house, my father was more or less comatose, his whisperings from the recliner barely audible. My mother nodded from the kitchen as she was serving pancakes to the twins. Seeing my sisters there at the table, their faces dominated by grief and worry, made me realize that I had neglected them during this entire ordeal. I felt shame as I walked down the steps, past Calvin and the sea captain, and out of the house. The weight of Doug's impending visit made work pass by like an idiot beast crawling on its belly. The slow dragging of the day was made worse when I realized that I must have left my cell phone at the house. Nevertheless, on my lunch break, I used one of the work phones to call home and see how everything was going. My mother answered on the first ring, her obvious nervousness an interesting counterpoint to the thick fatigue in her voice. He's still in the recliner, talking to himself. He hasn't even gotten up to go to the bathroom or eat anything. Christ. Oh, you left your phone on the kitchen table. Did you want me to bring it to the store? Nah, leave it. I've only got a few more hours left. I'll see you guys soon. The last four hours of work dragged on by... It was actually a bit longer than that as I got held up and wasn't able to clock out until 30 minutes after when my shift was supposed to end. When I reached the time clock, I was nervous. The thoughts of my family and Doug awkwardly sitting in a room with my near-catatonic father racing through my head with reckless abandon. I ignored the speed limit on my way home. 
As I pulled in the driveway, I saw Doug's green S10 parked in the yard and drove around in front of the basement to my normal parking spot. I took a moment, no more than five seconds, to compose myself out in the dark before entering the house. The air was crisp and cool, but not unbearably so. Stealing myself, I entered the basement and shut the door behind me. Immediately, I noticed that Calvin was gone. The tall, haunting figure was not standing in front of the staircase. The soft orange of the single light bulb fixed above the steps did not wrap around and embrace any dark silhouette. Conversely, the sea captain was still there, albeit knocked haphazardly face first onto the ground. The hat and plastic skull mask had fallen off and tumbled a few feet from the fallen statue. I stood there for a moment in the silence, trying to understand the implications of what was in front of me. Then I climbed the steps as quietly as I could, reaching the door with a shortness of breath and sweaty palms. I can't fully articulate to you how confused and scared I was on that top step of the staircase. I turned the doorknob quietly and practically tiptoed into the house proper. And as it turned out, that fear was justified. I walked into the living room. Doug was there on the floor, great streaks of blood spiraling out from his body in all directions like the crimson legs of some terrible spider. Red stained the carpet some six or seven feet away from his body. Doug had been hacked and stabbed repeatedly with a heavy sort of blade. His face was a near unrecognizable wad of gore. Great, sickening cuts marked themselves all across his forearms and hands, clear signs of the brutal struggle he was never destined to survive. I must have stood over his body for several minutes, desperately trying to force my mind to accept and comprehend the sight of the terrible living room decoration. My mother, well, she, had, she had at least made it to the kitchen. I found her face down on the hardwood floor, her back hacked and cleaved countless times by the same instrument that had ended Doug's life. There were deep gouges in the wood around her body where she managed to squirm away from a few of the blows. There were not many of them. It felt as if I was floating through the house, the tips of my toes ever so lightly grazing the hardwood floor and then the carpet, and then back to the hardwood floor of the hallway. Ever since I had walked up into the house and found Doug, my body and my brain had been acting and functioning almost independently of one another. Now, as I neared the twins' room, I felt pure fear rack into every pore of my skin. My palms were so sweaty that it took me several seconds to twist the doorknob.
immediately turned and vomited on the wall when I saw them. stood there, but at some point I must have recovered to some degree and lumbered towards my room. That's where I currently am. I see now that I not only locked the door during my shocked days, but I also further barricaded myself in with my chest of drawers, nightstand, and bed. It's like there's a small hole in my life from the moment I opened the door to my sister's room to when I came to in my small recliner in my room. The only thing I could think about when I awoke from whatever haze had seized me was that my father had helped me drag the recliner into my room just a few weeks before his accident. In my paralysis, I had completely forgotten about my cell phone in the kitchen. I had locked and barricaded myself in my room with no means of calling for help. After I woke up again, I turned on this laptop to see if I could send someone a message. But it appears that the Wi-Fi has been cut off. After that, I toyed with the idea of jumping out the window, but I swear I saw movement out there in the dark before I closed the blinds. I could practically feel the eyes of some predator observing its prey. So, I decided to type this all up in case the worst happens. To give you, whoever you are, the whole story from my perspective. There is a good chance that this will never be read, but I had to try. It's all I could do, really. I do have a shotgun in my room, rounded out by three shells, so the future isn't entirely bleak. As I finish these last few sentences, I'm... I'm stealing myself for a fight. A few times during the creation of this sad little story, I'm certain I heard the soft footfalls of thick rubber boots landing on the hardwood floor of the hallway leading up to my room. What is he waiting for? I guess it doesn't matter anymore. The shotgun is loaded, and I'm as ready as I'll ever be. I just hope that when I move the barricades and fling open that door, that I will see Calvin's wide, bleeding eyes peering from the slit in his mask as I lift the shotgun. And in some... <laughs> in some strange way, that would be a sight my mind could understand and make peace with. I don't think I'll be able to pull the trigger if I see only one eye staring back at me.
consider the possibilities of the near future. The world has changed, but not by much. However, in this strange new reality, there are some things you take for granted that now pose unseen dangers. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Rose Blackthorn, unseen dangers can be the most disturbing. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Mike Delgadio, Peter Lewis, and Jessica McAvoy. So come on in, welcome to the preserve. Just don't wander off the beaten track, because if you're not prepared, you might find yourself waterless. First of all, welcome to the preserve. Here are your room keys and a map of our little settlement here. You can see there's an all-night cafe right next door, and we have an enclosed walkway between here and there so you don't even have to go outside. One of the services we offer is a little oral introduction of the preserve, presented by yours truly. Some people don't seem all that interested, but I'd like to tell you my story anyway. And if you don't mind, I'll get to it right now. My opinion? It all started with global warming. No one really believed it. <laughs> I mean, come on. The planet heating up until it started an ice age? That just makes no sense at all. But regardless of any of that, the winters were getting drier, at least around here. Not nearly as cold or as long as they'd been when I was a kid. We didn't get as much snow in the winter. Used to be three or four feet of snow on the ground, sometimes more, from October on through April. Temperatures used to dip into the negatives and stay there for weeks at a time. Then, in the winter of 12, it never dropped below freezing. Still had a couple of good snowstorms, but nothing like usual. The winter of 13 was so mild, most folks didn't even call it winter. We never had more than two inches of snow on the lawn all season. Clear on into April, all the grass was dead. Kind of a dried up beige color, lying flat against the soil. And not much rain either, so even the bulbs were late coming up. The county sent out surveyors to see what could be done when it was clear the reservoirs were likely as full as they were going to get. There was some snow in the mountains, but not enough to make up for what never fell in the valleys. This was farming country around here, despite what you might think driving through on the state highway. A shortage of water was going to make life hard on everyone. So those folks from the county, politicians, every one of them, even those that had been born and bred in the county, decided the only thing to do was to find a way to contain what water there was to be had. There were lots of canals and ditches, taking the water downhill from the mountains and foothills into the flatlands below. Some people still watered the old-fashioned way, they irrigated their land by blocking the ditches so the water would flood their fields. 
Some had invested in pumps and wheel lines, and they'd just siphon the water out of the canals and spray it over the fields. Either way worked just fine, but the powers that be in the county seat decided that too much water was going to waste traveling along those miles of canals and ditches. Water was seeping into the ground on its way to elsewhere, and never mind the fact that it was just going back into the groundwater. There was a bit of a boom that year for construction workers. Every able man or woman who wanted a job had one, as crews headed out to lay concrete pipe where every open ditch had been. And close the water, those politicians said, so it can't seep into the ground and it can't evaporate into the air. There might not even be a water shortage at all with this kind of conservation. Just uh, one thing they kind of forgot about. This is pretty good farmland around here, but it's dry. High mountain desert is what I've heard it described as. From a high vantage point, you could tell there was water by the trees. There's sagebrush, pinyon pine, and scrub oak all over the place. But the only place you'll see full-grown by-god trees is where there's water. Ponds, lakes, reservoirs, streams, and rivers are all lined with lush growths of trees. Most of the canal banks are kept clear of growth, but there were too many ditches crisscrossing the landscape, and they developed their own strands of bushes, saplings, and even mature trees. So, what happened when all those waterways were enclosed? It took a full year to pipe every waterway the surveyors could map. The winter of 14 was as dry and relatively warm as the previous one, but those politicians were smug. The trees, however, they had a bit of a water shortage crisis of their own. You know, it's funny. For probably thousands of years, people have taken trees for granted. They give a shade on a hot day, block the wind when it gets to howling, and according to the scientists, they actually make oxygen for us mobile creatures to breathe. You can burn their wood for warmth, or to cook your dinner, or even to ward off some ornery critter that might want to take a bite out of you. You can build your house from them, put a roof over your head, and fill your home with beautiful carved furniture made of them. And for a long time, I'm pretty sure if you made an effort to remove their regular water supply, they would just eventually die, fall, and then rot. But this here high mountain desert with the good farmland isn't like anywhere else. We got one other thing going for us, and that's dead dinosaurs. You just about can't throw a rock round here without hitting an oil derrick or a natural gas drilling rig. Now the oil and the natural gas, that doesn't really figure into anything. Except for this. When those companies started looking for better, more efficient, and cost-effective ways of getting those resources out of the ground, they kind of caused an unforeseen side effect. Now, I never worked in the oil fields, so I'm just telling you what I've been told. But they used this stuff they called mud made from water mixed with different chemicals. They would pump that mud down into their wells to help with the drilling. 
or to force pockets of natural gas to come up. That's all fine and good, but what it really meant was that a lot of chemical soup ended up in the groundwater. Since all the surface water in the county was enclosed so it couldn't seep down into the aquifer, the groundwater began to get a bit, well, I won't say toxic. There were all kinds of government agencies supposedly keeping an eye on the water, what with us running short, to make sure it was safe for human and animal consumption. As for me and my family, we used filtration systems and bought bottled purified water for culinary uses. Because seeing that deepening red stain in every toilet and bathtub made us none too interested in what might happen to our insides. So that's what led up to it, in my opinion. The spring of 15 was just about bone dry. The temperatures of winter were cool, but not cold. And we got barely any precipitation throughout the whole season. Everything was dying off, even in people's yards, because we were on a strict schedule for watering. All the trees in the area, the wild ones, I mean, that grew along those old defunct waterways... They were looking pretty sad. I wasn't the only one that shook my head and mourned the greenery of my youth. So when trees started disappearing, no one paid much mind. Unless you were to make your way over and verify that a tree had fallen, you'd just assume that's what happened. It was around that time when ranchers in the area started filing complaints about missing livestock. Mostly, it was larger, mature animals like adult cattle or sheep. The average number of deer and elk that always ended up roadkill declined dramatically. But again, that just could have been because they'd migrated elsewhere. What with there being little feed for them, even in the higher pastures. But then we started finding carcasses. They were left where the ditches and canals used to run open to the sky. Cows, goats, even dogs were found like they'd been mummified without the linen wrappings. Every bit of moisture had been sucked out of them, but not a mouthful of meat removed. Not even any teeth marks left behind to identify what had attacked them. The only mark on them was a few puncture wounds. Some were maybe the size of a number two pencil, but some were so small you couldn't even see them with the naked eye. More and more animals came up missing, only to be found as dry, desiccated husks a few days later. Those county politicians were in an uproar, calling the government for help. But... It was already too late. When a group of teenagers on a weekend camping trip never returned home, the powers that be called in the FBI. Their campsite was found with their vehicles and all their supplies still ready for a campout. A week later, all six seniors were found at the bottom of a dry well behind an abandoned cabin 20 miles from their camp. Every one of them was sucked as dry as a fly in a spider's web. The National Guard came in. There was a curfew. There were town meetings. No one knew what to do. 
because no one knew where the danger originated. Surprising to some people, but not to me. It was old man Borges who had the right idea, speaking up in a meeting at the high school. I had a stand of cottonwoods behind my place about a hundred yards. They grew up along a little stream that trickled there since I was a boy. Well, they ain't there no more. And I don't mean they lost their rootin' due to the drought and toppled over. I mean, they're gone. A lot of people gave each other uneasy looks. And some outright laughed. But me and a few others just nodded. I went out there a few days ago at noon. Those cottonwoods are gone. Judging by the state of the ground, I'd say they fairly yanked their roots out of that dry, packed earth and went looking for more hospitable surroundings. There was an uproar. Angry people yelling and scared people crying and the county assessor banging her little wooden gavel on the table while she called for order. When the meeting was over, nothing was decided, and people were still scared and angry. But me and some other folks that lived in the same stretch as old man Borges pulled him aside to find out if he knew any more. I found the start of a trail. He paused a moment to place a dip of chew inside his bottom lip. The man had never smoked a day in his life, but he was proud to brag he'd been chewing tobacco since the age of five. Rounds packed so hard it might as well be rock, so I can't say where it was heading. But I believe those trees took off northward, maybe heading towards the foothills. Trees don't move lest they're blowing in the wind. Dan Parker spoke with conviction, but there was a wild look in his eyes as though he didn't believe his own self. Gus Borges just shrugged and motioned with his head. You've seen those trees on my property since you were a baby, Dan. You come on by and take a look for yourself. You tell me what you think happened. Even if you're right, what do we do about it? Doris Nelson's fluttering fingers rubbing across her lips in a nervous habit that had left them red and chapped. Gus rubbed his chin thoughtfully, and the sound of his gnarled fingers moving across the stubble of beard rasped in the quiet evening air like some kind of unseen insect. I haven't seen anything moving during daylight that shouldn't be, so I figure they've got to be moving at night. So I, I don't go out after sundown, folks. I keep my dogs in the house with me instead of letting them sleep in the lean-to like I've always done. I've lost my wife, and my kids all moved out of state. Those dogs are all I've got for company, and I'll be damned if I'm gonna find them sucked dry at the bottom of that old stream bed. What are you saying? You think your missing trees have something to do with all the dead animals? There is a tone to his voice that you don't often hear from men who've spent their whole lives farming in the desert. Men like that don't have the imagination to get scared of things they can't see because all they believe in is what they can see. Gus shrugged and spat a stream of amber liquid. I'm an old man, Dan. In two years, I'll see my century. And in my 98 years, I have seen things you wouldn't believe, and I'm not taking the time to tell you about them. 
but everything I've witnessed in my life, no matter how strange or confusing, in the end, always made a kind of sense. And the sense I'm getting from this is simple. We took away the water and the trees went looking for it. Maybe by accident and maybe on purpose, one of them stuck a root into a napping steer and tapped into blood instead of water. In my mind, I have to wonder if they didn't get a liking for the taste. After that revelation, no one seemed to have much more to say. Dan Parker left pretty quickly, looking a little green around the mouth. Doris Nelson went on to find her kids and drive them home. I offered a ride to Gus, but he just gestured with his cane to the old 54 GMC he'd driven. 98 years old and still driving himself. His dogs, a blue healer named Tick and an Aussie cattle dog named Flea, were standing in the bed watching us. That old man had a funny sense of humor. People talked about what they heard that night, and the rumors eventually made it back to the county seat. There was a lot of scoffing and derisive laughter that anyone would believe such a fairy tale, but apparently someone must have put some credence to it. When the National Guard rolled into town with a flatbed load of freshly cut trees, there was a crowd on hand to watch. The reactions to the blood-red sap weeping from the trunks convinced most folks. The scientists brought in were disbelieving, then bewildered, and then ultimately frightened or excited. Old man Bodges had been right. The trees, having lost their water supply and metabolizing the chemical soup in the groundwater, had become mobile. And when new water supplies hadn't been easily found, they'd tapped into the next best thing. Our trees had become vampires. There were plans made for destroying the trees, burning them or hiring men to come in and free clear whatever stands were found. And that's when we found out the trees could fight back. It's bad enough dodging swinging branches or evading thirsty tap roots, but you do not want to go up against a pissed off Russian olive or honey locust. Thorns on those branches grow in excess of three inches long and are needle sharp. Russian olives have always thrived in this area, and they became the infantry of the tree army. So that's pretty much the story. Eventually, it just became too expensive to keep on. The government offered a settlement to every landowner in the area, with additional funds to aid in relocating. Pretty much the whole county has been added to the preserve. They went through and opened up all the ditches and canals again, letting the water flow open to the sky. Some of the trees went back to the old ways, but a lot of them didn't. They move in herds through the daylight hours, picking off small mammals and reptiles, even birds. Deer, elk, and antelope don't trust the shade anymore, for good reason. They sleep sheltered in the rocks now, or stay up in the hills where the trees never mutated. Most people are gone now, taking advantage of the government buyout. Some died, old men Bodges among them. 
He never did see his sentry. Tick and Flea were out in his back pasture when they were cornered by a couple of globe willows and a Russian olive. By the time he made it out there, cane in one hand and a 30 6 in the other, it was too late. No one will ever know for sure, but I think he just decided he wasn't willing to go on alone anymore. The trees may have sucked him dry too, but not before he blew the back of his own head off. Now me and a few other folks hang around. We run these little border motels so the tourists can come check out the carnivorous tree preserve in safety. We run short little tours through the ghost town that used to be the county seat. We point out the places where the National Guard had outright battles with 100-foot-tall poplars and ground-sweeping, weeping willows. The cottonwoods with their sucker roots devastated one group of soldiers, and the Russian olives and honey locusts finished them off. That kind of thing doesn't happen anymore because we've surrendered the field. But that's not to say that it's safe. Oh no. And we still keep a curfew. There's no wandering around inside the preserve after sundown. And no one goes in there alone, even in daylight. So there's my patented warning. Please make yourself at home. We've got cable TV and a little cafe right next door that's open 24 hours. Enjoy your night, get some rest, and in the morning we'll take that tour into the preserve. I know that you're young and full of vinegar by the looks of it, but I'll say it one more time. Do not go out tonight, not even to peek through the gate, because the trees are still restless and they still get thirsty for something fresh that doesn't move on four legs. And there have been reports of a herd of Russian olives trolling the fence line. You don't want to run into a gang of Russians in the dark. We all despise animal cruelty. People who treat animals poorly are despicable. But the sad fact remains that there are people out there with a flagrant disregard for the lives of our animal pals. In this cautionary tale shared with us by author Felix Flynn, we're unfortunately faced with such people, but the animals in question won't take it lying down. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy and Nicole Doolin. So treat our furry friends with respect and love and don't be a terrible person. Otherwise, you might find yourself dealing with what happened at the Puppy Mill. The 
dogs have been around since before I was born. Papa owned a local junkyard, sometimes selling scrap, but it didn't bring in enough money for the family to live on. The puppies brought in a pretty penny, Mama liked to say. They paid the bills and helped put food on the table. I grew up listening to them howl and bark from the kennels in the backyard. I'd get off the bus after school, then homework, then chores. Feed the dogs, check on any new litters we had, and clean the kennels. I felt bad for them. I'd learned not to say so, though. Papa would yell, tell me that they didn't have feelings, that they didn't care they were stuck in cages, cages that were too small to house two animals, much less the puppies each breeding litter endlessly bore. They were lucky to be here getting fed instead of living on the streets starving. I didn't believe that. They didn't look lucky. They were dirty, fur clumped and ugly, eyes tear-stained and lined with mucus, teats flabby and dragging the ground when they were actually on their feet and shuffling to their food dish. Some were sick, I knew but no one wanted to shell out money to have them taken to a vet. So long as they were pushing out healthy-looking pups, that was all that mattered. I could see sadness in those upturned brown eyes and hear it in their pitiful whines. Each of them was starving for attention, for love and a good home. I'd offer them scratches behind their ears or quick pats on the head when I could, when I was sure Mama and Papa weren't watching me out of the kitchen window. They didn't like me being sweet on the dogs. I think they were trying to spare me because of how hard I cried the first time I heard one was getting put down, a beagle that was too old to keep breeding. Over dinner, they discussed whether or not it was time she was replaced. I said I could keep her, that I always wanted a dog I could play with and love like my own. One that wasn't cooped up, but could run with me on the few acres of flat land surrounding the house. The beagle toddled all funny when its belly was round with babies, and its tail wagged the fastest when I went out to feed her. She'd grumble, not mean, but in the way old Mrs. Norris, who sits up front in church, grumbled when the Sunday mornings were too humid and the preacher was droning on too long. We could be happy together, I thought. Good friends. Mama had tisked. Stop that nonsense. A dog ain't no good unless it's bringing this family money. The next morning, I had lay in bed, listening to Papa get up, far too early to be right on a Saturday, and get his gun. I moved when I was sure he was out of the house, when he wouldn't be able to hear the creak of my floorboards, and peeked out of the window. Fog hung low to the grass, and leaked out from between the trees in the distant woods. The sky was pale blue, not yet dawn. Papa was in his brown overalls and work boots, making his way to the kennel, his rifle tucked into the crook of one arm. The usually loud dogs were quiet, shrinking back from him like they knew what was coming. He dragged that beagle out of her cage and took her further out. I watched her struggle, watched her tug and squirm against the iron grip he had on her collar. I turned away, tears already staining my cheeks, and listened to the silence until the gunshot rang out. She's been a good dog. They were all good dogs. Mama had fussed at me over breakfast for coming downstairs all puffy-eyed and sniffling, saying that I cared too much about stuff that don't matter. 
But when I had slumped down into a seat at the table, staring down at a plate of steaming eggs and bacon, she softened. You'll get used to these things. We can't afford to keep around dogs that aren't producing. You understand? I nodded wordlessly, but I didn't understand at all. She brushed my hair back from my forehead and pulled me close to her bosom, pressing a kiss to my hair in some attempt at comfort. You'll get used to these things. Then she went to prepare Papa's plate. I didn't ever get used to it. I didn't get used to the loss or the callous talk about them, like they were livestock meant for killing. Mom and Papa often got into arguments over which breeds were fads and what were worth investing in. Dogs came and went. They got too old. They fell out of style. They got too sick. Some were given to other homes, but most were taken out back. Each time, Papa would wear his brown overalls, the ones with the darker splotches stained on the front that, as I got older, I learned was blood. I asked him once what happened to the dogs he got rid of, and he said he buried them towards the back of the property. I wish I hadn't asked. Often I'd have nightmares about a mass grave somewhere, further out on our land than I dared go, maybe even to where the tree line was. There wasn't grass there, but mounds and mounds of freshly covered graves, all different sizes, where beagles and huskies and chihuahuas were buried. They weren't dead, though. Down under the earth, where their rotting flesh fed worms and bled into the soil, where white bones were laid bare, they were alive and angry, calling out to something greater than them, greater than me or Mama or Papa, something that was in the woods that lived in the shadows. I learned to keep to the house. The nightmares made me weary of the woods, not that I had much interest in playing in them to begin with, and I tried not to think about what was out there. I told Mom and Papa about the dreams once, but Papa had laughed, called them nonsense, and Mama had said that the dogs were dead and that they didn't feel nothing, that they hadn't felt nothing when they were alive either. So I learned to keep my mouth shut. Whatever misgivings I had about the puppy business were kept to my thoughts and never voiced. Though I wish now that I had voiced them, after everything that's happened. The black dog came when I was 14. I had been out at the kennels, refilling water bowls. It was the middle of summer, and I was glad that the cages were shaded, both for the sake of the dogs and because I was already sweating from dragging a few big bags of dog food out there from the storage shed. The dogs were pretty calm, all lolling, drooling tongues as they waited for fresh water. Some of them were sprawled out on the concrete floors, others up and vying for my attention. One of them, Duke, I called him, was becoming my favorite. He was brown and white speckled, with floppy ears I liked to rub. Papa had called him a short-haired pointer, whatever that was. He bred those for the local hunters, and the puppies were always snatched up fast. By the time I reached his kennel, Duke was pressing his nose to the mesh fence door and whining. I reached through to pet his nose, making soft hushing sounds. He turned his head, 
took my wrist so gently in his mouth and started to try and tug me inside. What are you doing, boy? <laughs> I laughed, pulling my hand away, only to have him come right back up to the door and press his nose back against it. You're gonna get me in trouble. No one inside paid much attention to the clamor of the docks. The soulful, heart-wrenching sounds they made may as well have been white noise for all the notice Mama and Papa gave them. I hadn't realized how quiet the other dogs had gotten until I moved on to the next kennel and the next near-empty water bowl. The dogs inside were sitting up at attention, mouths shut, ears up, and eyes fixed on the woods. What are y'all looking at? A frown crossed my lips as I glanced at the other cages to find that every dog was doing the same. All of them except Duke, who was still pacing, antsy, eyeing me. My heartbeat picked up its pace, and I lifted my eyes to the tree line, out to that place that had brought me so many nightmares. And there in the field was the biggest dog I'd ever seen. It might have been a wolf for how tall it was. Even sitting there in the grass, so far away, it looked enormous. My throat went dry and I froze. The hose was still in my hand, spitting into the steel bowl in the kennel, overflowing due to my lack of attention, and splattering loudly, too loudly, onto the floor. I couldn't move, couldn't breathe. The world was losing focus going fuzzy at the edges as the slap of water against the ground and sharp static filled my ears. The sensation was familiar. The first time I got blood drawn at the doctor, I fainted, and that's how it felt just before the world went black. Dimly, I waited for my knees to buckle, then give, for unconsciousness to grip me tight and take me. Only it didn't. I stood there like a stone, a cold sweat breaking out across my lower back, despite the persistent heat. The wolf and I stared at each other for a short eternity. Then, seemingly disinterested, it got up and trotted off, disappearing into the woods. Once it was gone, I could move again. My lungs were screaming for air, and I drew in a sharp, long breath, blinking away my mystified state. Heavy, cold foreboding curled into the pit of my stomach. Something was coming, I was sure. Something summoned by old souls deep in the ground. There'd be a reckoning for all the death that had been dealt here. All the innocent lives lost so we could make a quick buck. I jumped when I realized I was flooding the nearest kennel as the world came back into focus and jerked the hose away murmuring an apology to the pups inside. The dogs were still quiet, but they were looking at me now, not the woods. I thought about telling Mom and Papa what I saw, telling them what I felt, but they hadn't ever listened to me in the past, and they surely wouldn't now. If I told them, they'd laugh or get angry, would say I was making up stories fueled by those nightmares, that I was soft. I looked at the eyes that were on me, each pair big and soft, begging, searching, trying to say so much that I couldn't understand. Still, I nodded, knowing deep down 
As scared as I was, this was right. You're good, Docs. I cut off the hose and headed back to the house to wait. Mama and Papa went about their day like normal, but I'd mumbled that I was sick and headed up to my room. It was midday, but I sat down on the edge of my bed and stared out the window. I could see the kennels, could see that the dogs had gone back to watch in the woods just like I was. The usual sounds of birds, the rustle of wind through the grass and, beyond, the trees, were all muted. The world was whispering, afraid to talk too loud at the altar of something awful. All I could hear were the muffled footsteps of Mama in the kitchen, the distant blaring of the TV, and the occasional groan of Papa's old recliner when he shifted in it. Mama called when dinner was ready, but I didn't go down. I stayed where I was, expecting movement in the tree line. Nothing happened. Nothing came. At least, not until dark fell fully. The moon was bloated and large, raised high in the sky to cast a blue glow over the field below, over the kennels, over my bedroom. The dogs had gone from still alertness to pacing, just as Duke had earlier that day. Though they weren't anxious, weren't warning me of anything. They were excited. It was time. Emerging from the dark, as if made of it, came the black wolf I'd seen, casually loping across the field towards the house. It got about halfway when behind it, in the silhouette of the trees that were backlit by the blinding moon, eyes appeared. Four of them, bigger than my whole body and glowing white. They opened wide, then ascended as the figure lifted up above the trees. A black body made up of the darkest nights, of things long forgotten, of ancient times and creatures that were now mortal myths. It raised its head, I could make out a sleek snout that split wide when opened. The house shook from the force of its howl, timber trembling in anticipation, the feeling that ran its way up my spine and made my teeth chatter. The dog stopped their pacing and lifted their heads to join in the song. From below, I could hear Papa swearing and getting to his feet. I imagined him and Mama going to the door. Papa appeared outside, the floodlights from the corner of the house kicking on to illuminate him. His rifle was in his shaking hands, gripped tight, and he stood, dumbfounded for a moment, as he saw what I did. A moment was all they needed. The wolf stopped its slow approach and broke into a snarling run, aimed right for him. The dogs were still howling, louder now, triumphant and the beast against the sky lowered its grinning maw. We locked eyes for just a moment, and I felt its delight. Papa hit the ground as Mama screamed from the doorway. A coppery scent drifted up to me, a sickly sweet aroma that would have made me gag if I weren't so numb. The thing in the woods crept out, large paws forming from the dark big enough to crush the house if it chose to, but 
somehow light enough that it left no paw prints in its wake. Mama slammed the door shut, but that didn't matter. A second later, I heard it slam open, heard her scream as the wolf got her next. And then came the sound of heavy paws on the stairs, soft thumps and the scratch of nails coming from my room. I broke my gaze from the white eyes and moved to meet the wolf at the door. I was next. I had to be next. To pay for what I had done. My hands were sweaty, near slipping on the knob when I pulled the door open. The wolf was there, teeth bare, blood on its fur and lips. It didn't attack like I thought it was going to. Instead, it gave a low growl and turned on its heels to start back down the stairs. I followed wordlessly, somehow knowing that's what it wanted. Below, in the living room, blood painted the walls. Mama was sprawled on the carpet, her face barely recognizable beneath the gashes that covered it. Her clothes were torn, body ripped open, with great chunks missing from it. Crimson oozed over raw, exposed meat, leaked onto the floor to form a lake that my feet sank into. Thick moisture, hot and sticky, seeped between my toes, made my heart start to hammer in my chest as revulsion rolled over me. My gaze darted away when my stomach turned, and I swallowed down acidic bile. I pushed on. Out the back door, Papa lay crumpled in the grass. The dark had turned the blood to inky smatterings across the ground. I didn't let my gaze linger too long, though I knew he was in the same state Mama was. In the light, I could see the creature, not made of shadow at all, but a bumpy, bony body that consisted of thousands of others. It was a mesh of rotted flesh, flecked with white that... Up close, I could see where animal skulls melded into the grayed muscles and exposed tendons. Patches of mangy fur clung helplessly to clumps of sagging skin. Its teeth were chipped, old used bones sitting crooked, but still stark white against its viciously red, oozing gums. This old beast was made of the animals buried out back, and others like them. The howling was quiet, and the ancient thing from the woods bent over the kennel, its vicious grin opening so it could close powerful jaws over the flimsy trappings. It ripped the cages apart, setting the inhabitants free. Dogs hurried from their prisons, rushing to their savior, their old god, tails wagging hard, ears up, happier than I'd ever seen them. The dust from the now-demolished kennel settled, and the dogs quieted their excitement enough to sit by the great beast's haunches. All eyes were on me. The wolf circled, a vulture spotting new prey, perhaps sensing my fear. This was judgment, I knew. Silence fell. I wondered if they were speaking to one another in an old wordless language I didn't know. I didn't speak, though some part of me felt like I should voice some defense. The smell of torn metal, of the dusty kennel, held my tongue. 
From the line of freed dogs, Duke came forward. He took a spot by my side, never looking at me, his head held high. The wolf stilled, ears perking up, and the god's grin faded. There was a moment more of deliberation, a stretch of time that left me breathless, until, as one, they all turned away. The dogs, the wolf, and that terrible beast started for the forest. Duke stayed and waited with me until they were out of sight. I didn't tell the police what had happened. I didn't tell them anything one way or another, but I didn't have to. Mama and Papa's deaths were ruled as an animal attack, and I was sent to live with my aunt and uncle in the neighboring county. My new family let me keep Duke, and I spent the rest of my life doing what I could to make him happy in return for how he'd saved me. For all the summers we spent playing in the nearby fields, for being my best friend and making me happy too. He died just before I went away to college, as if he knew I was leaving, and my aunt and uncle let me bury him in the backyard, in a grave all his own. I'd spent an hour digging a hole that was deep enough to put him in, and when the grave was covered, I stood, wiping sweat from my brow, looking out across the high grass that stretched on like a gold and green sea. There, a few yards away, a black wolf sat, watching with approval. In our final tale, we join a group of kids who, often overlooked by their parents, have taken it upon themselves to make some new friends. In this tale, shared with us by author Carly Racklin, we discover they've done what they can to cope in the woods, but the forest holds safety and secrets for them. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock, Nicole Doolin, Peter Lewis, Jessica McAvoy, James Cleveland, and Erica Sanderson. So by all means, go out and make new friends, but when someone comes knocking on the door, make sure you know who's out there. It might be your buddies, or it might be the uninvited. Mama grins at me from across the room, her white gloves slick with shiny blood. She peels the rubber from her fingers one at a time, then glides over to the wastebasket on the table. All I can do to keep from being sick is watch the dust bunnies on the floor dance in her wake. See, Nessie, what did I tell you? Over in a blink. Right, Reese? Papa stands over the bed, holding the sick man's right arm in one hand, and 
writing in his notebook with the other. I can see the dark smudge of stitches on the man's belly through the sheet. He breathes, slow, but steady, though I have no idea how anyone could breathe after being cut open, even by Mama. Just shy of four hours. I could have sworn it's been four days. My head feels too heavy for my neck, and each time I blink, my eyes sting. On the end of the table closest to me, beside all of Mama's tools, sits a bowl covered with a rag, where she put the sleeping man's cancer after she cut it out of him. I tried to pay attention, but the moment the first gush of blood came out of the line Mama's knife made, I had to shut my eyes. At least she was too busy to notice. Papa leaves the room, and I catch a glance of the man's wife on the other side of the door. Her face is all scrunched up, just like my insides feel. I recognize the breathy rumble of Papa's voice a few seconds later, but I can't make out the words. He sounds so calm. On the wall behind me, the window is not quite closed. The curtain's drawn tight, but not tight enough. A draft tickles the back of my neck. The forest is watching us, watching me. The eyes of who knows what crawling over everything. I want to stand up and close it, but I can't make myself move. And I most definitely can't ask Mama or Papa, because then they'd ask why, and they never like any of my whys. I'm trapped, and the wind puffs again, like it knows. A damp hand brushes the hair back from my forehead, and I jump. I look up at Mama's smiling face. A thin line of sweat stands out above her eyebrows. The giddy spark from before is just barely shining out from her eyes now, like she's bottling up the feeling for later. She kneels in front of me and takes both of my hands. You did great, Nessie. I didn't, of course, and I want to say so, but she knows. Because after I dropped the scissors the second time, she told me to make sure the towels were folded and asked Papa to hand her things even though he was already busy making his injections, and I had already folded the towels. But I don't say anything. I don't know what will happen if I open my mouth. Mama sighs and pats my hands a little too hard. The right side of her mouth twitches. I know what she's going to say. We've talked about this, Nessie. It's okay to be afraid. Do you think I'm not a little scared every time we have to come into town for another surgery? I do think that, actually, but I can tell she's asking the kind of question you're not supposed to answer. How about this? Think of fear like a dog. You have to keep a dog on a leash or else it'll run wild and get you into all sorts of trouble. Understand? The man on the bed groans, and before I can answer, Mama stands and calls for Papa. You can put a dog on a leash, sure. I know that. But what about when the dog is bigger than you, and stronger, and it can tug itself out of your hands? What then? I bet Mama's fear is the littlest dog you've ever seen, if she even has one. I make myself look back at the bowl covered with the rag, and all the sharp, red-spattered tools sitting uncovered next to it. A small stream of blood bubbles up over the rim of the bowl and splashes onto the table without a sound. Drip, drip, drip.
doesn't stop. I choke on a gasp and jerk up from my seat. My stomach does a somersault. I look to Mama and Papa, but they're not looking back, just like they've stopped coming to my room at night when I'm having nightmares. They pretend not to hear me now. Instead, they stay huddled over the bed and mutter to each other in serious, low voices. I blink a couple times and hope this is my imagination. Mama always says I have an active imagination, but she says it with a sad dip in her voice, and I know she wishes I was different. That's not what this is, because there, in the lamplight, no matter how many times I blink, is the blood on the table, dripping and dripping over the rim of the bowl. But there's nothing under there. Nothing but the cancer, which Mama said can't hurt anyone once she cut it out. But it's there, or at least something is. Bleeding, soaking the rag dark red and making it droop. I shiver, though the room is warm. I'm going to be sick. I try to take a step toward Mama and Papa, but my knees fold under me. My cheek smacks the dusty wood floor, and the blackness from the slit in the curtain is everywhere. Pine needles crunch under my feet, and warm blood wells up in the scrapes. The trees all blur together around me like streaks of wet, dark paint. I run and run and keep running. My throat burns with the itch to scream for Mama or Papa or anyone. But my voice is gone, like someone snuck down my throat and snatched it right out of me. A twig snaps behind me and I run faster, not looking to see what did it. Low branches slap my face with their leaves, smearing something wet on my cheek. I pray it's only rain, but I don't dare check. I burst out of the brush and into a clearing of flat, soft dirt and fumble to a stop. Something's there, lying in the muffled moonlight. A doll, made of branches and leaves and mud. All its limbs are snapped and torn off scattered around in little piles. Its face is different from what I remember. Instead of the friendly smile I drew in mud, the mouth is open wide with horror. Its tiny dotted eyes stare up at me, begging silently for help. I want to tell it everything will be okay, that I'll put it back together because friends don't leave each other behind. But I can't, of course. I can never do what I'm supposed to in moments like these. So I reach down to pick up the pieces, but the doll's drawn-on mouth opens wider and wider still and spews a fountain of dark blood into my face. I wake up screaming, twisted in my quilts. A pale shape stands at my bedside. Elliot. Ness, Ness, stop. You're fine. He swats down my thrashing arms. My heartbeat swooshes like an ocean in my ears. It takes a few seconds for everything to come rushing back to me. The moon is high behind the trees outside the window. Their shadows stretch along the wall and make black gashes on Elliot's cheeks. I'm not fine. But by the look on his face, he already knew that. He just wishes it wasn't true. 
It was them. Our friends. I saw them again. The knowing look settles on his face and makes his lips go thin. He shakes his head. They're gone. You, you can't keep going on about this. Mama and Papa are getting worried about you. What a stupid thing to say. Mama and Papa have never been worried about anything in their whole lives. Especially not about me. But there are some things it's useless to argue with brothers about. Especially older ones. And I can tell this is one of them. Just... just forget about it, okay? His hands have settled on my shoulders, and I push them off. Is that really what you want? You want to just pretend they never existed? How could you say that, Ellie? We made them. Ellie looks away. The words come out high and whiny, even though I'm trying my best to keep my voice down. Neither of us wants to wake Mama or Papa right now. When he looks back at me, his eyes are narrow slits. I don't know what we did. You were there. Stop lying. You made them with the rest of us, and you were the one who answered the door when they knocked. You played with them too. It wasn't just me. Well, they're gone now, okay? And that's probably for the best. You have to move on, Ness. Move on. Move on is just one of the things adults say when they don't want to listen to you. Ellie might be the oldest, but he's not an adult yet, no matter how much he wants to be. But sometimes teenagers are even better than adults at not listening. My face gets hot, all the way up to my ears. I want to yell at him, or maybe cry, or both, but I don't do anything. All I can think of is the broken doll, and all the blood gushing like it did at the surgery only a night ago and the way our friends' faces looked when they walked back into the woods the last time. It wasn't a goodbye sort of look. Something bad happened to them, Ellie. I can feel it. He shakes his head again and makes a hoarse noise in his throat. Papa makes the same noise sometimes, usually when May or Ian fibs to him. <sighs> Go back to bed, Ness. And he turns and leaves quiet as a ghost. Only when the door is shut and I'm alone and the shadows on the wall start to sway do I realize I forgot to ask him if he would check for monsters for me. Mama and Papa won't do it anymore. Oh no, no, don't think about it. Monsters can always tell when you're thinking too hard about them. Wind shakes the trees outside and knocks the branches against my window. I hold my breath and grab the small sprig of white flowers from the table beside my bed. When I lie back down, I press them against my nightgown over my heart. They don't smell at all like they did on the day the old woman from town came to our door and gave them to Mama. We were still moving in then, and the house was smelly and dustier than the dollhouse Papa made Velma when she turned 11, though she says she's too old for it now. The lady's hair was the exact same color as the flowers, and her skin the opposite. She said she picked them from her own garden, and that Mama should hang them above the door, or else our emotions will wander off into the forest and become hauntings. Mama's smile gave her face a funny wrinkle when the woman said that. But she took the flowers anyway. When the woman left, I caught Mama's hand before she could throw them away. She let me have them, 
though, in the quiet moment between when I asked for them and when she gave them to me, that wrinkle got a little deeper. I still can't reach the top of my bedroom door, but if I asked for Mama or Papa's help, they would make me throw the flowers away. So I've been keeping them next to my bed. I've never had a chance to ask the old lady if they'll still work that way. She never visited us again. She called the flower Angel's Veil. The petals are thin and crisp like paper, and I'm careful not to touch them as I curl up under my blankets again. The trees keep up their tap, tap, tap against the window, like guests waiting to be invited in. It's the woods. It's always been the woods. I lie there for a while and remember everything Elliot wishes he'd forgotten. I was on my back on the carpet, counting the lines in the ceiling when Velma said it. When we weren't unpacking boxes and decorating our rooms, the others were so excited that we didn't have to share anymore. We met up in the parlor, trying to figure out what to do while Mama and Papa spent all day in town meeting with the people who needed medicine. Let's go outside. All of us looked at her. My stomach flipped. Mama and Papa never said we couldn't play outside. Just that, if we did, we had to stay where we could see the house. But there are bad things in the woods. What's there to do outside? Ian was stretched out on the sofa like a cat, his cheek smushed against the red and yellow flower pattern on the cushion. It's just a bunch of trees. Do you think there's animals? The way she smiled, May was probably thinking of rabbits or chipmunks. Soft, little things. But all I saw were wolves and bats and bears. It wouldn't have been so bad if we had neighbors, but there was no one. And none of the kids our age in town wanted to walk four miles down the road into the woods. We'd still be by ourselves even if we went outside. But by the time I thought to say all that, all the others had already gotten up and were heading to the door. The only thing worse than being bored in our old house together was being bored in it alone. Alone with all the dusty corners and spider webs, that was worse than anything I could have imagined right then. So I followed my brothers and sisters out into the woods. For a while, it was just like I guessed. We kicked around in the leaves and dug through the dirt, and nothing really changed. The sun went farther down in the sky, and the wind got colder and colder. We were just so lonely. And I sat down in the dirt and started thinking about what it would be like to play games with other kids. With siblings, even four of them, you got tired of each other after a while. You knew all their hiding places and whether they'd use paper instead of rock or scissors and the ends to all the stories they ever wanted to act out. So I gathered up everything on the ground that I could find and started making us some new friends. I tied twigs together with the stems of weeds and drew faces on big flat leaves. And after not too long, my siblings were all watching. Each of us made one and gave them names and our very best voices. And before we knew it, the sky was black and a coach bounced down the road carrying mama and papa in its belly. I'd forgotten what it was like to be looked at for so long. We all agreed that our friends lived in the trees. So we left them nestled against the trunks before going back inside warm and cozy in a bed of fallen leaves. That night, 
was the soundest sleep I'd had since we first moved into the house. I dreamt about our new friends, and for a little while, the woods didn't seem so scary after all. Then one afternoon, when Mama and Papa were in town again, they were there at our doorstep, our friends. Except they had bodies the same size and shape as ours, instead of just sticks and weeds, but were still dirty, like they'd slept right under the tree where we left them. They looked just as lonely as us, and we let them in. Mama doesn't ask me to come with her and Papa to any more surgeries. She doesn't ask any of the others either, to be fair, and even gives us a speech about how we've all had enough excitement to last us for the season. But none of the others ever fainted the first time they were brought along, or any other time. Two nights after my dream about the doll, Mama and Papa go into town again. And like every night, I lie in bed while the branches shiver against my window. Under my quilt, I can't see the trees, but it doesn't help. Not after I lost the flowers. All I found in the morning after Ellie woke me from my nightmare were powdery crumbs in my sheets. Maybe they'd gotten crushed under me when I slept. Or maybe I held on so tight that they just fell apart. Nothing can protect me now. I hold my blankets over my head and think about our friend's smiles again. I think of the games we played and how I was so happy it made me dizzy. How I felt like I'd never be afraid again. Especially not afraid of the woods, because it was the woods that gave them to us. They even made Ellie laugh. Ellie, who was always using more and more adult words and made adult faces and barely ever laughed since he turned 14. It was a miracle. All of it. But Mama says miracles don't exist. Not like science and medicine and other things you can take measurements of. But she and Papa never met our friends, so I guess it's not her fault that she doesn't know. Mama doesn't believe anything that wasn't written in a book. And even then, she only believes certain kinds of books. Not the ones I read. The ones that have pictures and talk all about fairies and magic and things like the old woman from town talked about. Only huge, heavy books written by other doctors. Mama likes to say, things don't just happen because you believe they will. But I think the opposite is true too. Just because you decide not to believe in something doesn't mean it's not real. And that makes me think of our friends again and the woods and Ellie's frowning face telling me to move on, to ignore everything we saw and did. But I can't forget, it was real. I know it was. Because we made it real, that afternoon in the forest. We made them real. And then something took them away. Mama and Papa still haven't gotten back from town when the clock hits three and the chimes rumble up through the floor. I only half sleep. Under blankets, it's just dark and quiet enough to feel like you're asleep when you're really not. Everything is hazy, and the air gets thick and warm because of how long you've been breathing into it. But you can still hear most things outside, and if something happens, you're able to get up right away. So when there's a knock at the door, I jerk up in bed before the echo is gone. 
The shadows of the trees shake violently on my wall. For a second, I'm almost convinced it was just them hitting my window like always. But then the knocking comes again. Four quick thumps that seem to rip right up through the house to me. And I swear my chest fills up with feathers. I never thought I'd hear those knocks again. My quilt hits the floor with a whoosh and I leap from bed so fast the room spins. I throw open my bedroom door and barely stop myself from sprinting down the long hall. The sound my skidding feet make seems to tumble on ahead of me and then everything is silent again. My siblings' bedroom doors are all closed. I squint into the dark and listen. No floorboards creak, no doorknobs turn. I'm the only one that heard. I almost consider waking my siblings up, but they already made their choices. They moved on. So I smile to myself and tiptoe as fast as I can past their doors toward the window at the end of the hall, just before the stairs. There's the barest shimmer of moonlight on the glass, and I focus on that instead of all the dark crannies of the house that I know are watching. Still, I jump at my own stupid reflection. In the glass, my face is fuzzy and gray, and I wonder if anyone else sees a ghost when they look at me. No one said anything about how I look since I let May cut my hair a few weeks ago. Once Mama saw, she swore she'd fix it, but I think she forgot. I told her there was nothing to fix, but she just sighed and gave me one of her sad looks. And I knew better than to start a quarrel with her about it. I trace the choppy zigzag of my bangs on my reflection. The glass is freezing. I press up to the window and try to look toward the road for anything to tell me I'm not dreaming. A muddy bare foot or a face. I'm sure I'd recognize any of their faces still, even from far away. But I can't make anything out. No coaches or hints of lanterns either. The moon's vanished. It's too dark to even see the trees, though I know they're still there. I don't like that feeling. It reminds me of the night of the surgery and all the who knows what's that could be looking in at me right now. I pull back my hand. Shivers run up my spine, and for a moment, I think of running back to bed. If it's our friends, then they could surely come back during daytime to play, like they always did. I'm sure they'd understand. Those thoughts fizzle out like candles. I go slowly down the long, curving staircase, my legs wobbling with each step. Even though I hold the railing so hard my knuckles turn white, it feels like it's going to slip out from under me any second. I look back to the window, but all I see is black. The front door is twice as tall as me and made of old wood that Papa painted white not long after we moved in. Standing so close now, I can see all the little cracks that cut across it, showing the dark insides like the slit in the curtain at the surgery. There's a hole to look through, but I can't reach it. All I can hear is the ticking of the big grandfather clock at the base of the stairs behind me. I take a breath. My hands shake, but I manage to undo the latch and drag open the door. Nobody's there. No coaches, no townspeople, no smiling children wearing leaves and dirt. No one, just the wide open night and inside it, the woods. 
A gust of wind blows in, so strong and cold it almost knocks me off my feet. My heart sinks down in my chest like I've just swallowed a rock. I lean forward to look out past the doorframe and into the yard, my throat too tight to call out, when something twists into my hair and pulls hard. I land on my side on the floor, and it pushes my voice out of me in a whine. Just past the throb of the pain in my head, I hear laughter, and my cheeks burn despite the cold creeping in. Of course. Of course. My heart sinks even lower inside me, lower than I ever thought it could as I pick myself up. This isn't funny. Which... Which one of you thought of this? I wipe at my eyes and try to breathe the urge to cry away. It doesn't work. I wonder how long they've been watching. Probably ever since I passed their rooms. And even then, they'd probably been listening before. I thought Ian had been scolded enough times to stop pulling my hair. But Mama and Papa aren't here to scold him now. Worst of all, Ian's not smart enough to have planned this all on his own. That hurts too much to even think about. Don't. Don't cry. Not now. Don't be such a baby. I sniff, ball my fists, and spin around, ready to spit out all my anger like one of the dragons from my books. Mama and Papa aren't here to scold me, either. But no one's there. The front hall is empty. Everything wound up inside me goes loose. Then another icy draft smacks my legs, and the door behind me crashes shut. <gasps> I spin again, my knees knocking together. I know it's not the cold that makes me shake this time. I Ian? Ellie? S stop this! Just stop! I grab the door handle with both hands and pull, but it won't budge. It's stuck, even though the latch hangs open on its shiny chain above my head. I know you're there. Just, just open the door. I won't tell on you if you just stop. Please. I wait and listen, but no answers come. I wish I was back in bed, warm and blind under my blankets. I want to close my eyes and breathe and wait until morning chases away all the shadows and their tricks. More than anything, I want to not think about this night anymore. Because maybe in the morning, all of this will feel like a dream. And then it won't have to make sense. Then I won't have to think about those knocks and that laugh and the sting in my scalp. Because this isn't a dream. And I can imagine a lot of things, but not this. Not something that hurts this much. Fear knocks into me like wind and everything goes cold. I try not to think about it, but it's too late. The question's already buzzing across my skin. Because if it wasn't our friends knocking, or Ian laughing, or any of my siblings playing their cruelest trick yet on me, then, then who was it? Instead of screaming, or crying, or running back up to my room, I think of Mama. I remember her warm hands on my face and what she said while we were surrounded by bloody, awful things and the forest was watching through the window. It's so loud, but nothing's there. And I shut my eyes and cover my ears and shout with my strongest voice, which is still so small. Go away. 
Go away! Go away! Go away! Go away! Go away! Then I opened my eyes. I can't tell anymore if it's just me or the house shaking, or both. But I turn around, and still the clock is the only thing with me in the front hall. But the hands have stopped moving. I take a step toward the pale splotch of my reflection in the glass. Then another, and I stop. The me in the glass is smiling, wide and toothy. But the real me isn't. I lurch back just as the clock tips forward and smashes across the floor. <laughs> the glass skitters at my ankles, and I run. I trip over my feet on the staircase, and when I reach it, the window at the top of the stairs shatters too. Branches and leaves fly in and all around me and knocks and crashes and cracks. I swear there's more laughing. Ice-cold wind bites at my legs as I bound down the hall to my open bedroom door. As soon as I slam it shut behind me, everything goes quiet, like waking up from a bad dream. I back away and slip onto the familiar plush shape of my bed. And for a moment, I almost think it was a dream. But then I look down at my feet, covered in tiny lines of red from the glass. And I finally feel the sting. Moonlight spills in from the window. The trees wave and tap like always. Then a hand shoots out from behind me and covers my mouth. I'm turned around so fast I can't even think to scream. Elliot stares at me with teary eyes. Behind him, crouched on the floor, arms in a tangle, are Ian, May, and Velma. Yes. And in the quiet that follows, we all hear it the creaking floorboards just outside my bedroom door. I watch Ellie's eyes flicker over to look, but I'm frozen in place. Something big and heavy pants or laughs. I can't tell which. Ness, what did you let in the house? As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.